Dear Jesus, uh, just as you have given this word, just as you are the subject of this word, would you now, by your spirit, come and illumine this word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, and encourage us deeply with this your word and what it is that you are about. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Let me give you three, key, uh, three little pegs uh, to hang this passage on uh, as we think about the mission of God and what it is that God is doing. Uh, to summarize it all before I give you the three pegs, to summarize it all, God is building a kingdom. He's building a kingdom. Another way of thinking about it is he's, he's reclaiming what belongs to him and he's restoring it. He's reclaiming what belongs to him and, he, and he's restoring it. He's building a kingdom. And here are the three things that you can be thinking, thinking about as you think about the fact that God is in the midst of the world, building this kingdom, reclaiming and restoring. The first, the first of them is this, verses 14 and 15. There is in this passage the summons or the call of the gospel of the kingdom. And then in verses 16 to 20, there's the second. There is the work of the gospel of the kingdom. There's the work of the gospel of the kingdom. And then third, there is the goal of the gospel of the kingdom. And that's in verses 21 to 28. The summons of the gospel, the work of the gospel, and the goal of the gospel. So first, the summons of the gospel. Um, we need to be clear about what gospel is. What is gospel? Most of you, I think, know this. But gospel means good news. It comes from a couple of words, a verb, and then a little prefix attached to that word. Um, the word, the verb, means announcement, heralding an announcement, making a proclamation. And the prefix simply means good or even joyful. So gospel is a joyful announcement. It's a glad announcement. It's glad tidings, joyful tidings, right? Some of you are still puzzled about the fact that we sang joy to the world a couple of weeks ago. Wait a second. It's over. Christmas is over. Advent is over. No, but you see, every week, it's the privilege of this pastor to stand in this pulpit and say, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Amen. Glad tidings. Joyful tidings. Glad announcement. But here's the thing, the announcement is the announcement of a kingdom. You see that in, in Mark 14, when G, 1, 14, when Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news that comes from God, the good news that is about God, what God is doing. You see that that proclamation is cast in the language of a kingdom. The gospel is about the kingdom. The good news is about a kingdom. You remember from Advent? 
that the announcement to Mary was that she would have a son and that God would give him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there would be no end. That was the announcement to Mary, the good news to Mary, the glad tidings to Mary that a king is coming. That's the nature of the gospel. A kingdom is at hand. And do you remember in those Advent sermons and that that particular sermon in which we looked at the announcement to Mary, I gave you a new word for your vocabulary. It's the word eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, not E-R, not eruption, not something that explodes out like a volcano, but an eruption, something that explodes in. That's the announcement to Mary. The king is coming. And when the king comes, he brings with him everything that is characteristic of the kingdom, all of its authority, all of its truth, all of its hope, all of its compassion, all of its mercy, all of its justice. Now here's a really, really striking thing about this announcement, this gospel, this glad news, these glad tidings of the coming of a kingdom. Here's the really striking thing about this in Mark's gospel. It's the very first verse of Mark's gospel. This is so dramatic. This is Cecil B. DeMille stuff. For those of you who remember Cecil B. DeMille. In other words, this is big picture stuff. This is powerful stuff. The very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Fairly innocuous words, right? Words you're familiar with, words you've heard a thousand times. But in Mark's day, and before that in the day of Jesus, those words had significant content and significant associations. In 1899, an inscription was found in Asia Minor, in what is now Turkey. And fragments of that inscription were found subsequently in several other cities in Asia Minor. The date of the inscription is 9 B.C., just a few years before the appearing of King Jesus. 9 B.C. And the inscription is in reference to the birth of Octavian, Caesar Augustus, who was born actually in 63 B.C., who reigned until A.D. 14. But in 9 B.C., this inscription appeared all over the Roman Empire. You know what it said? The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on His account. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on His account. The good news, the glad tidings of a birth. A birth that brings joy to the whole of the Roman Empire. The birth of Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus. That's the formula that was used. You think think Mark just sort of stumbled into some language? I don't think so. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark, who is a man of his times, captures language, picks up language that would have been common and known among the people of his day, and he employs it to what end? He employs it to this end, to say there was another birth. There is another king, and there's another kind of kingdom. And by the time Mark wrote his gospel, having employed that language, the Roman Empire had had quite enough, frankly, of the oppressions and the abuses of the Caesars. Glad tidings. The good news, the announcement of the kingdom of King Jesus, who I've said this to you before, who is unlike any other king. Who possesses limitless power and employs it to one great and glorious end. And what is that? The honoring of the Father in serving fallen sinners like you and me. Not to abuse, not to oppress. Not to extract service from the citizens of his realm. But he is a different kind of king. Comes into this world, in fact, not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Don't you think that's good news? That's great news. So what is the summons of the kingdom? If this is the gospel, if this is the glad news, what is the summons? What is the call? Verse 15, it is to repent. It is to repent. It is to turn. That's what the word means. The word means basically to change your mind about something. To change your mind about something, right? You're headed down a path. You're going in a particular direction. And as Yogi Berra so aptly put it, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. You see, when you hear the glad tidings, the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom, the announcement that King Jesus has come, that he's a different kind of king, not one who extorts, but one who serves Not one who oppresses, but who is himself oppressed so that those whom he loves might be liberated. You come to the fork in that road and the call, the summons is to change your mind about everything you see. And to turn from the course that you were pursuing and to follow a new course, to go in a different direction. And folks, in this particular case, and this is a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I freely admit it. Freely admit it. In this particular case, the challenge is to repudiate the kingdoms of this world and enter by faith through Jesus Christ into the eternal kingdom that will never end. Now, before you say amen again, let me give you as an illustration, not that I'm discouraging amens. I hope not. (laughs) 
Let me give you an illustration of the very thing that I'm talking about. When Jesus summons people to repent and to repudiate the kingdoms of this world, you have a perfect example of this in the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, who records his itinerary, who recites for us his pedigree, who conveys to us all of his compelling associations that he is of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law, perfect in righteousness, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And he considers his citizenship, his associations, his record to be dung when compared with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm not going to tell you what the literal translation of the word in the text is because it is offensive. It is a scatological term. It gets translated dung. It gets translated refuse. That is in order that the translations might be polite. My brothers and sisters... How do I view the associations I have in this world, the attachments I have to this world? How do I view my citizenship in this world? The Apostle Paul considered it refuse when compared with the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus the King and of being a citizen of His realm. I don't want to live anyplace else. I've told you that a thousand times. But you know what, my friends? I do not want to overvalue my citizenship in, in the midst of this world. The Apostle Paul says we have a different citizenship and our citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of King Jesus. The summons of the gospel is a summons to repent. Meaning, change the way I think about my attachment to this world. And turn in the direction of a kingdom that will never end. My citizenship is in heaven, not Rome, not Germany, not Holland, not Ireland, not the United States of America, but the everlasting kingdom of King Jesus. What is the summons of the kingdom? What is the summons of the gospel? It is to turn, change my mind, and value above every other thing this kingdom that will have no end. And what is the work of the kingdom? Verses 16 and 17 particularly. I don't have a whole lot of time for this, so I'll, I'll give it to you in a kind of a shotgun blast. <laughs> and I hope the buckshot hits you all. All y'all. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, 
And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. What is the work of the kingdom? If the summons of the kingdom is repentance, the work of the kingdom is the work of rescue. It's the work of rescue, my brothers and sisters. The language that is used here is language that comes from, and the imagery that comes from Jeremiah chapter 16. And the setting, the context, this is so important. Read, read the whole chapter this afternoon or this week. Read, read the whole chapter, the setting in which these words are spoken. The setting is judgment. The reason for the judgment is rebellion, Israel's rebellion, Israel's repudiation of a God who is infinite in glory and grace and joy and, and whose works in creation and redemption are simply the mighty overflow of the joy that he knows in his own existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The creation is filled, the Scriptures say, with the loving kindness of God, evidences of His kindness, its beauty, its tenderness and delicacy, its majesty and strength. And His works of redemption are clearly works of compassion and mercy and grace. And Israel tasted these things. Israel was not in the dark about these things. Israel was the beneficiary of these things. And in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, the language comes from Ezekiel too, but here in Jeremiah, the context is the context of judgment because Israel, to use Jeremiah's language from chapter 2, has repudiated fountains of living water to drink from cisterns that are cracked and broken. Looking to idols. Looking to less than God to do what God alone can do. And God says through Jeremiah, verse 14 of 16, Jeremiah 16, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all of the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And I will send hunters and they shall hunt for them from every mountain. For my eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from me. What's God saying? God's saying that in the context of judgment, in the midst of that environment of judgment, He's going to send fishermen. Fishermen who are going to do what? They're going to rescue people from judgment. They're going to reel them in. They're going to cast their nets and draw them up. And they're going to draw them up from the bowels of judgment and lift them up to the surface, to the light and beauty of God's existence and grace. That's what fishermen are going to do. 
What is the work of the church? If you go on to read farther in Jeremiah 16, you'll see that the word is addressed not only to Israel, but it's addressed to the nations. The nations are in view in this. What's the work of the church? The work of the church is a work of rescue, and the rescue is of critical importance, folks, because there is a day coming. There's a day coming. A day appointed. I don't know the day. I don't know the hour. You don't know the day. You don't know the hour. Stop speculating about it. Stop listening to people who do. Jesus didn't know. He said his father was the only one who did. The father has appointed the hour, the moment, the second, when the son will return in spectacular glory and he will enter into judgment with the nations. And folks, that's a frightening prospect. I was reminded of a passage this last week. It seems to have nothing to do with this passage. But I was reminded of a passage this last week that a seminary professor of mine lectured on, which you know very well, I suspect. First Kings 19. It's the story of Elijah when he's in the cave. And you remember, you remember the wind, and you remember the earthquake, and you remember the fire. And the comment in the text is that God, the Lord, was not in the wind and he was not in the earthquake and he was not in the fire and then there was a still small voice this quiet little whisper this polite little summons my old testament professor meredith klein took exception to the translations he was a hebrew scholar he took exception to the translations and he convinced me the hebrew word Still small voice. The Hebrew word is kol. I challenge you to find anywhere in the scriptures where the voice of God is quiet. The other two words, still and small. The word still means to be struck dumb, to be struck silent. Even in some, uh, in some uses, to be caused to die. And the word that is translated small comes from a Hebrew verb that means to crush or pulverize. Do you believe it? I'll show you. I'll show you the lexicons. So what's a better rendering of what it is that Elijah saw when he came out of that cave? A crushing voice that leaves one mute. Now let me ask you this. Go read First Kings 19. Why would Elijah wrap his cloak around his face in the presence of a still, small, polite, summoning voice? This was the voice of God Almighty who wanted to know what his prophet was doing hiding in a cave. And it's the same voice that Adam and Eve heard the sound of when they heard the voice of the Lord God coming in the cool of the day. Folks, the day is coming 
the scriptures indicate the day is coming when people will do exactly. They will seek to do exactly what Elijah did. They will seek to hide in caves from the voice of the righteous judge. And they will call for rocks to collapse upon them so as not to face the wrath and judgment of the righteous judge of heaven and earth. See, the summons of the gospel is to repent and the work of the church is to rescue. Summon people to turn away from the bankruptcies of this world, their attachments to this world, and be reminded that a day is coming when one voice will tower over every other voice. And that is the voice of King Jesus who will enter into judgment with the nations of the world. Please, please don't think that this is just an overheated pastor who's got to earn his keep on a Sunday morning. I beg you to believe me that that moment could come before this service of worship is over. It could come before you wake up tomorrow morning. The work of the church, my work, is to summon you to turn off of the paths of foolishness and idolatry, the paths that lead nowhere, and hear the sweet summons of King Jesus as he calls you to enter into a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that is unlike any kingdom this world has or ever will see. It is a kingdom of compassion and mercy and goodness and forgiveness and freedom and hope. That is the summons of the gospel, to repent. And the work of the church is to rescue. And here lastly is the goal, the final goal of the kingdom. It is restoration. Keep this in mind as you read about this miracle, as you read about any other miracle in the New Testament. Keep a couple of things in mind. Celebrate them. Celebrate them. Celebrate that this demonized man is the first one in Mark's gospel who begins to be healed by the mighty touch of Jesus. This demonized man is the first prisoner set free from bondage in sin, from bondage to Satan. This prisoner who lives in the fear of death, the first one in Mark's Gospel to be released from that fear by the mighty touch of Jesus. In fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, right? The serpent crusher will come, and when he comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. Those of you who have been around here for a while, you know this represents Jesus' declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness. 
So celebrate wherever you see a demon-possessed man, a demon-possessed boy, liberated, set free, wherever you see, like Peter's mother-in-law, a woman healed of some malady, wherever you see, in verse 40 and following, a leper, an outcast, one ostracized who has to live apart from the rest of society, touched by Jesus, embraced by Jesus, restored by Jesus. Celebrate that. Whenever you see 11 people stand before you publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ, understand this, a greater miracle has occurred in each of their hearts than occurred in the deliverance of this man, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, or the cleansing of a leper. God has done the greater thing in imparting new life to one who was dead in trespass and sin. Celebrate. But notice I said, notice I said that in setting this man free, Jesus began the work of restoring him. You know what is true of him. You know what is true of Peter's mother-in-law. You know what is true of the leper. You know what is true of the son of the widow at Nain, Luke 7. You know what is true of Lazarus. Every single one of them succumbed to the last and greatest enemy. The restoration was not complete and finished. Everybody died who had been touched by Jesus. Everybody died. These miracles, folks, precious Miracles, which result in people being restored. You know, the Luke 7 thing, Jesus raises this son from death to life and gives him back to his mother, the text says. What a precious and tender thing. But folks, it's not the end of the story, is it? It's merely a picture It's merely a snapshot. It's merely a hint. It's merely an appetizer of what it is that Jesus will do when He returns. If when He returns, the voice will sound and people will crawl into the rocks, into the caves to pull rocks down upon themselves, there will be a whole chorus of other voices that will sing and shout and herald and proclaim the return of their King who when He comes will finish what he has started. He will finish what he started. Fully, completely restoring me to the image of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bringing me into perfect conformity with his righteousness, with his mercy, with his compassion, with his goodness, with his justice. Bring me into perfect conformity with himself so that I then might do what I was created to do. That is, be clothed in his refulgent, spectacular glory and be myself in my fully reconstituted condition to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the goal of this thing. But you know I trust that the goal doesn't stop with me and it doesn't stop with you. 
the ultimate goal is the liberation of the whole of the creation from its curse, from its pain, from its suffering, from its brokenness. The final outcome of this whole thing extends to the farthest reaches of the cosmos, beginning with you and extending there so that the glory of this glorious and gracious God might fill the whole of the new heaven and the new earth, so that shalom might be returned and restored to the whole creation. Folks, that's good news. That's really good news. Barack Obama can't do that. Mitt Romney can't do that. I don't know which side of the aisle you're on. What I know is they can't deliver on their promises. What I do know, King Jesus can and will. So what do we care about? We care about the mission of God. We care about the fact that God is summoning through repentance new citizens into his kingdom. We care that the church is involved in this work of rescue. And we care that the final outcome of it all is the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ so that he might be all in all. We care about that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that the day is coming when your blessings will flow as far as the curse is found. Your blessings will flow into the deepest recesses of our hearts and all that chaos and disorder and confusion and idolatry and arrogance and pride and preoccupation will all be rooted out, purged, and gone forever. Your blessings will extend to the farthest reaches of the cosmos and every place in between. All to the praise of your glorious grace. And Jesus, we thank you for it. We pray in your name. Amen.